Hello and welcome to Sounds Heal Podcast. I am your host, Natalie Brown, and thank you so much for joining me as we continue to explore the fields of sound therapy, sound healing, and using sound for health and wellness. I'm really excited today to have Frank Perry as our guest. He has an immense and extensive knowledge of the sound field, specifically Himalayan instruments, bowls, gongs, and has really spent a lifetime now over 50 years in this particular field, coming from a background in percussion. He has explored the history of these instruments and practices, and also has an approach that's very intuitive and spiritual, as well as creative and experimental. So we discuss his yin approach, his way of playing that is really about deep listening, is about playing from within the bowls rather than upon them. Frank shares some amazing stories and experiences of discoveries, of of growing awareness of sound, of helping people with bowls, of exploring what lives in the tone, what lives in the notes. We do discuss notes and frequencies and the the chakra system and overtones. And this is just really a fun and fascinating and interesting discussion. I'm grateful that this podcast is sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. The Ohm Shop is located in Sarasota, Florida, and they are a beautiful store that has a wide range of vibrational tools They're a luxury spa, and you can find them online at theomshop.com to check out what they have in stock, their products, as well as their online learning center and sound journeys. So thank you so much to the Ohm Shop for their sponsorship. Please enjoy this podcast with Frank Perry. I think it would be really fun, you know, after kind of revisiting your book, Himalayan Sound Revelations, again, if we could, just for the listeners at least, go back and talk a bit about your progression when you were young, because it's almost like your, your spiritual progression and your percussion and music progression ran kind of parallel lines, maybe not necessarily, but... If you could talk a little bit about how you got into music, percussion, and then experimenting in music, along with your early influences in spirituality and, and psychic experiences, it's just a, such a big part of who you are. If there are any highlights um, in your early musical and spiritual background, that might be a good place to start. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, I wasn't I wasn't brought up a spiritualist. My father was a trance medium, but I didn't find that out until I was 16, and I had gone into trance. And I had a I remember the painting of an American Indian on the wall in the parents' bedroom, and I thought maybe my dad knows something about this. So I went and spoke to him, and then then we got into the spiritual stuff. I used to go home every Sunday, um, and we'd have it for the circle, and then go back to my place that I was sharing with a friend and um yeah so then I kind of realized there is no death you know and also the things that these people were saying through me I've, I'd never had thoughts like it so I know it wasn't coming from my brain or subconscious or anything because uh it just you know well I knew that 
um, I would stand aside so that they could use my body. So I was kind of allowing them to walk, work through my body. So I knew I was consciously not involved, but so I'd be observing it just like anybody else in the room, watching it happen. And so the, the music, I wasn't brought up in a particularly musical household. I think the radio was on Saturday for Uncle Mac. It was some children's show. <laughs> and uh, on Sunday was the Billy Cotton Band show. That would be on. And that would be it, really. Obviously, it was, there was a, I discovered an old record player upstairs that used to play 78s. And then I discovered, I looked for what 78s and I found Ravel's Bolero. I'd never heard of him all that before, but I enjoyed that. And I was about to leave school. It was the last term of school, the spring term. And so I was thinking, all right, now that means I've got to get a job soon. What am I going to do? You know, and I suddenly thought, I wonder if I could do music. Like the Beatles were around at the time and the Rolling Stones. This was 1964. So they were, they were around. And I was in a school of boys, about somewhere between 800 and 1,000 boys, a very tough school. And... Um, there were three of us there that had long hair, and I was one of them. So I thought maybe I could be a musician. And somebody was banging out a rhythm on the desk. It was the drum pattern for a, a tune called Wipeout. So I asked him to show me, and I could do it straight away. So I said, what's next? And he said, well, uh, you better see the guy who's teaching me. And he showed me two standard rock rhythms. In 10 minutes, I got them down. So I saw him by the end of the day and said, I can do that. He showed, I showed him. And they said, you better see the guy who's teaching me. He's the top guy and the top drummer in the school. You know. Um, so I met, I met him the next day. And he showed me jazz rhythm, having a st steady cymbal rhythm and doing whatever you like with the left hand. So I, I got home, sat on the armchair. And I was about, about an hour and a half, I think, and got that down. So I went the next day and said, right, I can do that. What's next? And he said, show me. And then he picked his drawer up the Draw from off, off the floor, swore a bit, and said it taken him five years to do that. <laughs> so I thought, this is a sign. I'm obviously supposed to be a drummer, you know, no more questions about it. And um, so I, I, would, I got a job at Battersea Funfair uh, to earn some money. That was funny as well, because my first job there was just peel two sacks of onions. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a test, you know, that like if he'll do this, then he'll do anything. Yeah. He's got the job. And I just did it. And uh, so then I got the job and I never had to peel onions again. <laughs> <laughs> and so then with that, I could buy a little bit. So buy a snare drum and a stand for it and hi-hats. And then, then I think I was working. I'd left school and got a job in GEC, General Electric Company, as a trainee um, toolmaker. And because um, I was like top of the class in metal work and stuff. So, but I wasn't really, I was still really keen on the music. So anyway, that allowed me to buy a drum kit. And then I think I must have, with my friend at the end of the school year, we hitchhiked to Morocco. Took wow. about two or three weeks or something. Mm -hmm. And then came back and then I think I soon moved into a, the flat with my friend Alan. And... Um, and then went into trance after about a year after that, and then that started up. Then I used to go home every Sunday. And one time, the leader of the circle, who's a, apparently is a member of what's called the Great White Brotherhood, uh, we have six members in our particular group, and he asked me to abstain from any alcohol, drugs, uh, on the day of being used by him. So in my tiny little mind, I thought, well, if it's no good for that day, it's no good for any day. So I'll mm. knock it all on the head mm -hmm. and lost all my friends overnight. <laughs> right. <laughs>
<laughs> well, you know, they used to come and hang out, lie, lie around the place, and <laughs> I mm. wasn't, I wasn't fit for that anymore. So eventually, I I went back home, and um, then I was commissioned to paint the different spirits. There were about seventeen, so I painted them, and then I thought, okay, so I was I was top of the class in art, so I thought my art is now serving spirit. How do I get my music to serve spirit? Mm. And so I'd ask myself the question, and what would music be like if I wasn't in the way of it? Not just meaning my ego, but also my conditioning as to what is music. You know, especially in the 1960s, there was not much talk of world music then or anything like that. That was a very niche kind of area of music. So music in my school, you know, was major, minor, you know, diatonic scale. That was it. Singing songs I knew didn't understand the camp down races and God no can't it's one I remember but it was pretty dire you know and um so I kind of thinking right well also the question what is the music like on other planets mm. I mean I don't I mean I didn't I wasn't into astrology at the time it just occurred to me that it's not going to sound like Radio 1. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it may not be in any language I could comprehend or whatever, but the thought there came. And so I was kind of open to working with sound in a different way, just coming from these questions and from an inner kind of searching. And so then I joined a blues band called the Black Cat Bones, and they specialised in Chicago blues. And that felt good because it was kind of like very meaningful. It was kind of very serious. And then we'd rehearse twice a week. And the late, great Paul Kossoff played lead guitar in that. And he was the son of the, a famous actor called David Kossoff, who did a lot of Bible-type things and wrote books about that, about God and things. And uh, But I was still using this kind of jazz technique that I'd got from the drummer in the school because that's the only that's the only teaching I've ever had on music was from these few guys in mm -hmm. the school playground. <laughs> so uh, so then um, that was, as I say, very kind of serious. And I was using this jazz technique, and they're kind of saying to me, I think a blues boom was about to happen. So they're kind of saying, could you uh, reduce some of that fiddly stuff and just like be more like a rock drummer, do more of a Ringo star, just mm. lay it down, you know? Mm -hmm. So I tried really hard to cut down on my syncopation and stuff, and it weren't enough. So come February of 1968, they asked me to leave. And so I, I thought, well, I'm using jazz technique and I'm not really into all this ego stuff. I'll uh, Maybe I should get into jazz. It's kind of like, you know, I can play more quietly. I don't have to struggle against all this electric stuff. And um, so then uh, I used to go to a record shop called Manzies in Swiss Cottage, North London, round about where I live, and was friendly with the guy who worked there called Richard Lee. And uh, so I went in one time and he said, how's it going with the blues bands? And I said, well, um, I'm not in there, not working with them anymore. You know, looking to get into jazz. And he said, oh, well, a friend of mine, he plays saxophone. He's wanting to start a group. Uh, you know, here's his number. So I rang up Mike Sullivan and he was into the spontaneous music ensemble that was founded by John Stevens in the mid 60s. And I think we actually met for the first time at one of their gigs. And that really blew my mind because it was what was called free form group improvisation. So no time signatures, no, yeah. And the guy, the drummer wasn't uh, 
a genius in terms of technique, you know, but he was able to do what he wanted to do. He had enough to be able to get the noises out that he that he wanted to do. And it was it was very new to me, very never heard anything like right. it. Mm-hmm. And I stayed all up all night trying to work it out, you know, and then a penny dropped and I thought, ah, I could suddenly see this was the way ahead for me. It was almost like a you know, like getting to America back in the early days and having just thinking this it's a virgin territory, we're mm-hmm. gonna start again, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. So then we, so I got into that. I got to playing with Michael and I used to come down here. By then, we'd, my parents had moved up to Suffolk. So I used to come down every weekend and stay with a friend and went to the gigs on a Friday night and Saturday night and, and then hung out with Mike. And then we got to 1970 and I'm living up in Milden Hall and uh, a friend of mine, he's uh, bumped into his mother on the street and she said that her daughter, Bob's younger sister, had just had her appendix out. And Bob was getting very physical at this point, so she was worried that he might punch her and that would hurt this, this wound. So I suggested you come and stay with my, me and my parents. Uh, that didn't go down very well at all. I mean, I was 21 years old, but uh, bringing somebody home uh, wasn't wasn't the done thing. So it was very funny. got to about 11.30 at night, and my mother says, see us in the end of the garden and lock the gate and you know, <laughs> what are you talking about we're a hundred miles from where she lives there's no coaches till you know god knows when so she said well you know you can stay under this roof but she can't so i thought oh i knew an artist friend and i knew where his art shack was you know his shed so we went and slept there the night you know which was so then i put her on the next coach the next day so then i thought right you know it's obviously time to move back to london there's only a handful of people playing the music i play in the country and they're all in london and you know so i moved back down and the day i moved down i had a gig at uh, rayman's uh, um club the crucible it was called and uh, started at 7.30 at night, and I finished at 7.30 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. And he made me house drummer there and then. And I, I mean, that didn't mean anything to me. It just meant I could leave the kit there and could play version yeah. every day. Mm-hmm. Well, 15 years afterwards, I realised I never actually got paid. Oh, <laughs> house drummer. You know, what does this mean, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was quite funny. But I got to play with all sorts of people, and I was working with all the top people in the field, all the geniuses, like... Evan Parker, Derek Bailey, these were very innovative, extremely gifted people on the cutting edge of what was going on. And playing with Chris McGregor, a South African pianist who brought over a number of Zulus to play with him in the in the mid-60s. And uh, also co-founded a band with, with Keith Tippett called Overy Lodge. He's a jazz pianist, and he was uh, doing very well at the time before he met me. He was playing kind of time and tunes and that. And then, of course, he wanted to get into freer stuff and so I think that uh, we probably weren't so popular after that. And then I co-founded a band with Ian Brighton who played electric guitar, uh, very much in the kind of style of, or the area of Derek Bailey. So I co-founded a few bands that were freeform group improvised music. And then in about 1971, a photographer friend who specialized in photographing jazz musicians, he happened to drop by where I lived in my bed sit. And he said, I've got some instruments for you. So I said, oh, right. And he said, oh, this, I've got this guitarist friend. And um, he used to play with these in his grandmother's house. She was given them by a visitor in 1900s. And uh, so he's, they're on permanent loan to you. And they were two Burmese Kaisi dongs and three singing bowls, although I called them chime bowls at the time, as I'd never come across any singing bowls by then. 
so that that kind of started there and uh, John Stevens as I mentioned earlier the drummer in SME uh, I was at one gig when I heard he played a gong I think he may, I mean, may have even hit it with a drumstick but as I, I always listen with my eyes closed and I thought that's the kind of sound I'm looking for that can bring this spiritual thing into my music mm. and so my father got me a gong from some, some junk shop, maybe a 12-inch diameter dinner gong, you know. I've still got it. It's a very nice gong, very old. And uh, so I started to think about that, and I, I didn't want to dive in because I thought this world of percussions wide open, I could get a xylophone vibrant, you know, to wait until I really know or really feel what is my direction. And then that led me into Chinese gongs and Chinese cymbals and bells and Japanese drums and were all kind of augmented my basic kit. And so, yeah, and then gradually, I think one time uh, I was very busy. I was, if I wasn't rehearsing, I was recording or performing uh, all the time. And uh, one weekend I happened to have nothing on. So I thought, oh, let's get back to my my meditation music it's really you know and i found it quite hard to get back into listening to my instruments in that level of consciousness because the freeform music i was playing was normally very high tempo you know and so this was like hitting a gong bong and it's like goes on for a minute or so it seemed like a whole number (laughs) so it took me a little while but then so then i concentrated meditated focused on just playing that one gong and then realized because at this point i joined the white eagle lodge was doing spiritual healing and meditation and i realized it was tuned to the heart chakra and i wasn't looking for that i wasn't expecting that i hadn't thought what chakra is this gong? Like nowadays people go to a bowl, bowl shop and what chakra is this bowl? And I didn't even thought about that, but it was, I couldn't deny that it was working on it. And then I thought, let's try the other one. And that was for the throat chakra. So I thought it makes sense. I and mean, if these are temple gongs, you know, makes sense that they would have that kind of effect on you. And so then I was kind of looking for more instruments like that. And, uh, and they started to come. Uh, I was working as a council garden in 1973 and in, you weren't allowed to work in the rain. And I remember one tea break, I suddenly saw myself in Tibet about uh, 800 years ago, looking at myself now, looking at myself then. So it was like no time, like 800 years was like a second away. And so I thought, oh, it would be nice to have something to represent my past lives in Tibet then. You know, I've got stuff from India and China and Japan and um, so I asked my leader of my circle, White Feather, and uh, about two years later, I only asked once, I don't like to make a nuisance of myself, and uh, I got a phone call from a yogi from Tibet saying, I've been asked to give you this symbol, are you interested? So I said, no, really, try Prince Charles. And so I said, yeah, please, you know, we'll meet tomorrow, you know. So we, we met and we, we walked down to my place and he talked about his time in Tibet He'd done three of these special things where you, for three years, three months and three weeks, I think it is, and he'd done three of those consecutively without a break. So he'd been stuck in a cave for a long time and managed to get back to the West or out to the West. And um, so he played this thing eventually. And again, I was listening with my eyes shut, as is normal for me. And I just saw this great big flash of bluish white light. And I thought, wow, how did they get that into this little lump of metal? You know, this is amazing 
And so then he said, do you like it? I said, yeah. He said, well, it's yours. I said, well, uh, how much are you kind of thinking? Uh, and he said, no, no, it's a sacred tradition. Money should not change hands. If you want to contribute to my fare back to Tibet, that's fine. You know? So I've got this amazing, really powerful symbol, extremely spiritually powerful. And so then it's the, the question of, which is a question I sometimes find myself, that I've got this, I've got all these instruments and then that thing. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so how do I build a bridge? I mean, I've got to, I want to find a way that I can get to this thing gently, lead the person in gently or sustain a period of time amongst those kind of sounds. So I need more, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it would be any kind of instrument I got that was a bit way out there or stuck out like a sore thumb, I'd have to think, how do I build a bridge, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I got to buy for Dingsha and then more kind of, I think I got a few more Kaises and things like that. And then I invented some instruments and because um, I was uh, an endorser of Paiste. And my oldest son was very ill, 79, and we were invited to go convalesce in Switzerland. And the guy there was a member of the same spiritual group as me, and he asked me, you know, where, anywhere you want to go? And I said, well, Paisia in Switzerland. So we went and visited. And he said, anything you want, he was an inventor, and he made a lot of money. Anything you want, just let me know, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I was trying out the tuned discs, and uh, I found that some resonated with certain cervical vertebrae of mine, which the alchemist, that's the, that's the vertebrae in the neck. Mm-hmm. So I thought that, and I know that the alchemists, the ancient people, linked them to certain planets. So I asked for a set of those. I said which ones I wanted, which notes. And they made me three of each one, so I could choose the most perfect, which was very kind and generous of them. And then they took me to a back room where there was benches. And on this bench were these five really dusty discs. And they explained that they, they had the two octaves of tune discs from middle C up. And they were kind of like, they tried to go one octave down. They made just the black notes. And they said the problem was that it no longer made one sound. And when you struck it with the plastic rod that they had, it just made a clunking noise. And the guy struck it and it went clunk. But at that very instant, I had the thought, well, what would happen if I reduce the diameter, the amount of matter, but keep the diameter? And if I do that in a harmonious way, and I had this vision of like flower petals, like circles. So I went back to the guy's house, and he had a a workshop under his flat, and so I spent eight hours sawing one of these up and hit it with the hammer handle. It was an amazing sound, all these harmonics and warbles going on and things. So I thought, great. So they gave me all five, and... And then I got them home and turned them all into discs. And then I applied to the Arts Council of Great Britain to have money to buy more metal to make more discs. And I I was successful with that. And I had about 19 of these, which featured on one the the first track, the first side of the album New Atlantis, which was on Celestial Harmonies. So did did I miss anything else I need to say? Oh, not at all. That's wonderful. Wonderful hearing your stories (laughs) and how it's all developed and and uh you know as yeah it's all very natural i mean i couldn't yeah. have gone i mean this this discarnate tibetan came to work me lompuk Trenglum, and um i wasn't expecting no any but it was great you know, he would help me to see what what my instruments were creating and he wasn't fussy i had mini car gear wheels that i'd found on the on the road and put in my drum kit you know and then i had mm-hmm. hubcaps from the metal hubcaps in them days mm-hmm. and helped me to see what they were doing you know on the mm-hmm. levels so it wasn't like, oh, no, we're only going to look at sacred things. And so that really 
well that was that was after i received that symbol that really changed my life and uh, a couple of days before my 25th birthday and uh I still use that and, and of course if I'm trying to work out what a bowl is all about I will I find if I strike that symbol three times it's as if I've only just got my ears I've just been born and the first sound I hear after that this is like I'm a like a virgin space and then I can really hear what that sound is doing. See I'm curious about that because um, in, in your book you talk about your sound related path is more of a yin feminine approach where you you follow where the bowl sounds lead and that largely in western society we're yang dominated but <clears throat> you know your approach is through your instruments from within them rather than upon them and i think that's a really yes. important distinction if you could talk about how your your bowls guide you rather than kind of placing labels on them you you learn from them and and their effects this also goes back to my early days it would have been 1969 when i was living in mildenhall suffolk and two of my well, mike sullivan and the bass player came up to my place because so, i used to rehearse at weekends when the factory was closed i'd rehearse in the kitchen and uh, that was funny but it's another thing but anyway um i remember there was a point where there was like a drum solo i mean there was all right there was a period when there was only drums and so I had these very intense feelings in that. And I used to record stuff and listening to it back, I'm expecting to hear all these feelings. And I couldn't get any of the feelings. All I could hear was this really complicated drumming and really complex techniques and everything. And I thought, well, what happened? So that was it. I decided from then on, my practice is going to be, how do I get what's in my heart through the sound so that people feel what I'm feeling, you know? And so that was an important change, and I've never, I've never practiced since then, since 1969. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a good number of years, I think, isn't it? It's been yeah. over 50 years. Right, I'm a bit lapsed, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so that was playing through the drums rather than upon them. Mm. So playing complicated techniques, all from the mind, mathematics and all that, that was, for me, became like playing upon them, being very clever and all this. And so now I want to get through them. I want to get, so it was a question of developing a new vocabulary, a new language. And so of course, being a drummer in those days, you'd go, I'd go to a cymbal shop to buy a new cymbal and I'd have to go for every cymbal in the shop. Nowadays, Piesty might say, uh, flat ride cymbal, 18 inch sounds like this. Uh, 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 crash ride sounds like that. So you're, they're kind of saying that if you go into a shop and you're looking for the sound like a crash ride, go through them and you'll find it. Whereas in the old days, you just had to just be a bundle of cymbals and you just kept going until you found what you liked or that had the kind of color that you, that you, that I was looking for. And so you know, my ear was already getting tuned to listening to the, all the sounds within a metal instrument. And then, so then with these gongs, like I say, being with them, uh, at this weekend when I had nothing else to do, um, then finally really being with them, really understanding, not knowing what they do, but understanding, being under the influence of that sound i could feel what it was doing to me and and maybe it would do the same for other people but uh hopefully if i'm working with it then there's more chance of that mm -hmm. i mean i sometimes say i mean how would it be if uh, donald trump was to play a throat chakra bowl it's not going to work is it 
<laughs> you know, I mean, if it was all in the bowl, if it was just the instrument, it wouldn't matter who was playing it. Yeah. You know, criminal, gangster, murderer, uh, pope. You know, it really wouldn't make the slightest. But if it was all just the instrument, it would do it, no matter who you are, who you were. Maybe you just didn't know. All you knew was hit it, and that's it. Walk out and make a cup of tea coming in, hit it again. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, whether, <laughs> or whether you're totally absorbed in this attentive listening, really really being in it i mean sme were like that the band spontaneous musical ensemble it was it was very close listening very more than any other band i've heard because they were creating on the spot so you really had to listen to one another and share what was going on there was no dominance it's not like i'm the leader here's my tune play it you know mm-hmm. it was more what are we going to do now and and it was almost like who's going to crack first <laughs> it's just silence and who's going to give in <laughs> <laughs> it's like that sometimes and um so there was this really close so i got used to thinking of music as something of really listening and um creating co-creating with other people and because of my psychic abilities i would sometimes know what they were going to play before they played it and then i'd be able to play the most perfect thing to kind of go with that you know and so i could keep moving in and out of that i could move between playing as if I'm in another room and can't even hear what these guys are doing and then being really tight. So I would always be want to be free as to applying different kind of techniques towards the thing, you know, and sometimes I, we work with a dancer and then I would change the rhythm because to go with what the dancer was doing and everybody else had their eyes shut and it was like all down for a full house. <laughs> and the only reason the music bore any relationship to the dancer was because I was looking and feeding that into the sound, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of to do with, with that listening. And then not every bowl, I mean, it's not, I mean, some new bowls I can find will have a certain application. And that's to do with the kind of combination of harmonics within the bowl. I mean, they're not tuned harmonics according to the Western scale. This is because bells and bowls do not obey the laws of music the laws of sound they Mm -hmm. do not obey the arithmetic progression which everything else does uh should i elaborate on that in case any listener yeah that'd be great Mm -hmm. right so arithmetic progression is let's say your starting note is 200 then it goes in 200s from there 200 400 600 800 1000 so 200 to 400 is is an octave and then the next interval is a fifth, and that will be the 600. And then the 800 will be the next octave. And then the next octave of that will be 1600. So it's mathem, it's arithmetic. It's, it's duplicating itself all the time. Mm-hmm. Bowls don't do that, nor bells, because there's no guarantee that they're a perfect circle. There's no guarantee that they've been hammered with the exact same force on every single spot around the wall of the bowl and every area of the bowl. There will be different things thicknesses within that and some of my bowls the walls are different heights you can it's not even a it's not even flat on the on the surface mm-hmm. on the rim mm-hmm. it's so they're like different lengths of piano strings or whatever so there's a lot of different sounds going on inside the bowl i have a bowl that has 25 different sounds within it mm-hmm. and this is why i've got a problem when someone says oh you have to find a bowl that's an f for the heart tracker it's just you know I mean, most of my bowls have got 14 different partials. They're called partials in, in bells, not harmonics or overtones. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a world of sounds within that and then in this arithmetic progression. And then the only difference is that the, the, the material that the body of the instrument is made from 
uh, say, violin, to a clarinet, to a, to a saxophone, to a piccolo, you know, they might all be playing the same note on a musical stave that the composer says, right, play a C. And they're all playing a C, but they don't sound the same. We know oh, that's, oh, that's not an oboe, that's a violin, isn't it? Or is it a clarinet? Or whatever. You know, we can tell this different timbre. And they've all got the same ratio of these harmonics, but the body of the instrument emphasizes some of those and cuts out some of the others and that gives us what's called a acoustic signature or whatever you want to call a timbre like i say so that will be the quality of the instrument that brings that particular combination of overtones mm -hmm. but singing bowls don't do that um you can get bowls i have some bowls which have three or four notes that are similar amplitude they're all about the same volume so how is the ear supposed to know well i'm looking for an f this mm -hmm. heart chakra business you know Right, <laughs> the right. poor soul lying there they're getting these four notes and if they were anyway aware that there's this idea of linking notes to, to chakras and things which one should i listen to mr perry please <laughs> just a minute <laughs> i'm hearing seven there <laughs> actually i had a guy came for sound hearing and afterwards he said um uh how can i find out more about acoustic he got a degree in sound engineering you know in sound I struck a bomb and said, how many sounds can you hear? He said, one. I said, well, you've got a problem because I can hear seven. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I said, the way you can tell a good bowl from a bad bowl is by how these seven get on or don't get on. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're a happy family, it's what we call a good bowl. It's a pleasant, harmonious bowl. If they don't get on and they're arguing and there's discordant sounds going on because they're not, re to not related harmonically together, harmoniously, mm -hmm. um, then you would say that's a bad bowl. Right. And so I recommended a track on one of my albums that would that was to do with um, emphasising the different qualities and textures of his different bowls, and that might help help open his hearing to hearing more than just the one sound. But sometimes it's a question of knowing where to look. I remember we were on tour. Well, I was doing a tour, a solo tour of Cornwall. We stopped in at Keith and Julie Tippett's place. Keith Tippett, who I founded Overy Lodge with, who died at the weekend. Mm. And um, so Julie was there and she said she spent 12 years trying to do overtone singing, harmonic singing, whatever you want to call it. And I didn't know we could do that. I just, I'd heard, I've got records of Mongolia going way back. And I just thought that's their thing. I didn't, I'm a bit funny like that. And she, so she demonstrated and played me records where I, I could hear it all. And my missus couldn't. So in the car in the morning, I said, uh, oh, I'm going to try that. And I did it straight away. I'm the drummer, she's a singer, you know what I mean? I better keep this quiet. But my mother didn't hear it for ages. And then finally she said, oh, oh, it's a, it's a, oh I can hear it now. It's a question of knowing where to look for it, you know. Sort of. mm -hmm. And I've had classically trained musicians down at my place, and they've not heard it. You know, I've played recording with the top people in the world. It's like blaring at you, and they just can't hear it. And after three hours, the pianist said, was oh, that a flute? Someone playing a flute outside the room? I said, no, that's the guy's voice. Really? I said, yeah, yeah. Said, that's what's singing alongside the fundamental tone that he's singing. Yeah. Oh, wow. So finally, it broke. It cut. You know, it, there was an enlightenment moment, you know. So it's maybe, maybe it's similar with bowls, you know, to how many sounds anyone can hear in any one bowl. Yeah, you made a really good point, though, um, that oftentimes, especially I think it has to do with marketing, especially in the States, that people want to get that F bowl for the heart. Oh, I have to have an F bowl for the heart. Mm -hmm. But when it's more about using your intuition and experimenting 
with the bowl and, you know, using deep listening to find, oh, how does it affect me? Where, where am I feeling this? How is it changing how I feel rather than a note, a note name that has the effect? For me, the bowl is asking me to go to come around to their home, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I see it. I'm being invited on a journey. And like my heart chakra bowl is very child. You have to be very simple like a child. It happens to be tuned into the Master Jesus in my understanding. And he always comes when I play it. And so it's very pure, very divine, very simple and childlike. And not everybody can go to that space. Some people are terrified of that space. If they've had a, you know, if, they, if they've had, got a broken heart, they've had a bad, you know, had a lovely relationship, it's all gone wrong. And they, they just keep their little heart child in the heart locked away barred behind bars you know then they're going to need a different approach something i have another bowl for that especially for that like a broken heart purple robe bowl i call it and it's very uh helps the sound makes one feel nurtured and safe and secure and i can telepathically talk to the person say just let your child out just for a minute just for 10 seconds and just let him have a little play you know and then you can lock him up again afterwards but give him a breather you know and maybe you'll get to see that it's okay you can let him out again but yeah i mean there's huge problems i have with that whole thing because um you know you can't i mean i've got bowls that go back centuries and nobody can tell me that some little old boy up some mountain in the himalayas was banging out this bowl and had a piano next to him and checking whether it was a c or a d mm-hmm. or an f they were never heard of our western scale yeah. and our scales changed the pitch standard has changed down the centuries so right. even if it was that scale you know are we hearing what they heard if we listen to bark now we're not hearing what bark would have heard in his day when we're 70 cents sharper you know it would stop us and say hang on you're in the wrong key you're you know you're almost in the next key up and uh, yeah, so and then on the instruments that were played in the day, we have different instruments now. So there's the pitch standard. Then there's equal temper tuning versus just intonation and very difficult with fixed pitch instruments because for practicality's sake, if you wanted to have pure tuning on a fixed pitch instrument, you'd need 12 pianos so you can play. Oh, I'm playing the key of C on this piano over here. Now I'm going to go to F over here and then I'm going to go to B flat over there and <laughs> you'd be running around a... So that was impossible. And when composers wanted to shift from one key to another to bring a different color to that phase of the music, they wanted a tuning where it would sound okay in any any key you could modulate and it would you'd get away with it. It would sound okay. If you had a piano tuned to one key and then you started to play in another, it would start to sound very bad. The in, some of the intervals would be seriously out. You know? mm-hmm. And then we've got the problem of the... There is a problem with that scale anyway, because as you may know about geometric progressions. Mm-hmm. That's where we take an interval and we add it to itself. So, of course, we our scale is built on a, what's called a cycle of fifths. And after 12 fifths, we come back to almost the same starting point. The difference is a lemma or a Pythagorean comma. So, it, so ever since that time, there's been a problem of how do we... How do we go about tuning these things? Do we, do we just make it that the fifths are okay or the thirds are okay and we make do with the rest, you know? So it's been easy to solve and the current one is what it is. And um, for most for most musicians, composers, it won't matter. They've got a melody, a song. If they give that song to a singer and she says, oh, could we reduce that, a, bring it down a couple of keys? I can't really get that upper register. Co-composer wouldn't care less. Yeah, sure, bring it down few keys but if another composer like Giacinto Chelsea who was very concerned with what lived in each individual sound he'd go no 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 we can't do that sing another piece 
you know, or, uh, or Dane Rudyard, who was very concerned with what lived in an individual tone, you know, what lives in the tone, not just, oh, that's a note, and that's going to make up this tune, and we're going to play that on the piano, then the oboe's taking over, then the flute, and then we're back on the piano again. You know, that's fine for that kind of music, where it's just a noise or a sound, it's organised sound, and you're playing what's called music. You're entertaining the king or whatever, and a nice, happy little tune and stuff. And You know, if you've got a baby being born, maybe you're playing a quiet tune, if the king's really stressed out, maybe play a quiet minor tune, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so you move it around. Um, so trying to stick that system onto singing bowls is just singing bowls are a very bad choice for that system. If you want to use that system, I would say get a violin, a, a piano, anything that's tuned to that system. But singing bowls, they're just everyone is unique. I could play a bowl to somebody and say, that's a heart bowl. You want to find one like that. And what are they going to do? Get a measurer out and me- measure every single sound in it and go around every shop trying to find a bowl that's got those exact combination of frequencies. How long have they got? Mm-hmm. I mean, people make bowls out there and they'll say they're tuned to a certain note and that's uh, that's for the seven notes, seven chakras, off you go, buy the set, happy, happy. you know. But uh, they don't have any regard for octave. Right. You could have a... You could have a C for the root chakra, mm-hmm. top C. Right. You can have the lowest B for the crown chakra. They don't care. As long as it's a B or a C or whatever note they're looking for, they don't particularly care. And I've seen people come to me with sets of chakra healing bowls and they've got four or five notes stuck on a little sticker inside the bowl telling you what the notes are. Mm-hmm. So I know here four notes and they don't care whether it's the fundamental of the bowl or the loudest pitch in that bowl that's the next note you need, all they care about is it's got it in there. <laughs> you need a right. D in your It's in there somewhere. Now, you know, you know, and you know it's not in tune because they make a real fuss when they say this is this is a, this is C using A at 440. So you know what's it the rest of the time then? And it's, I mean, I'm not being critical. It's a lump of metal, you know. If you start, it's going to be really critical. You're going to have to have really expensive electrical equipment to test it all the time because one or two hammers too many and you're and you're flat and you can never get it back you know so i don't think it's about the note i don't for me it's not about the note if that works for somebody else that's fine i'm not out here to say i've got the one and only way or anything anything daft like that i'm just sharing what my experience is in case anybody else is following a similar path and feeling a bit out in the woods and they like a bit of confirmation or you know or maybe just to give somebody an area to explore in or expand their understanding you know i'm not trying to say this is the one and only way but i can say that i can't believe that bowls made in in i mean all right not tibetan anyway but bowls made in india in those places down the centuries have got anything to do with western tuning and Alan Presenter, a friend of mine, he was going through out to Tibet illegally for many years in the 1970s. And he put boot polish in his, on his face and he had the features that he looked at thing and he could talk the languages. He was a t- Tibetologist. And so he could pass and, and he would go around and he never, met, he never mentioned to me ever meeting anybody who was teaching sound healing with singing bowls. And uh, I know other people, somebody like Rain Gray, who lived out there for 10 years trying, he couldn't find anybody until eventually uh, a relative of his wife found a lama who knew something about it and 
they had an in, had an interview and he published that as a booklet. So people spent years out there. But I bet you, if we went out, if I went out there now trying to find out about it, I'd find out within an hour of landing or something, mm-hmm. you know. Right. <laughs> and there'd be people really telling me, "Oh, well, this is an inherited system from my grandfather from the 1910s," you know. And I'm, "Oh yeah, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, yeah." Uh, I mean, I've got I've got four throat chakra bowls, for example. They're all different notes, but I've got them because they produce a different color on the astral plane. And if I'm wanting to put gold to the throat chakra for if a person's very depressed, whatever, then I will use my throat chakra bowl that channels gold on the inner level. Mm-hmm. And if I want to put blue to it, I'll use the blue one. And I had a eurythmist. I was on. I was involved with the Rudolf Steiner place, Emerson College, one summer summer school music summer school. And uh, they just got these gongs from a guy called Manfred Bleffert in Germany, and they were wanting to do Eurythmy with them. And Eurythmy is a system that Steiner, where he gave particular postures, poses for the body for different notes on the piano and, and different letters in the alphabet, different planets. And so they didn't know what to do because the piano is like bong, 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 you know, and they, they hit this gong and it's 30, 40 seconds. What are they going to do? What do they do with their body in this? All right, they know the pose for the note that that gong is. It's tuned, it's a tuned gong. But so, they, but they couldn't wake the, the guy up on the day that they, they put aside an afternoon to study this and they couldn't get the gong guy up. So I said, look, um, John, I can play a bowl for like 10 minutes. You know, you can be in that space for 10 minutes. That's what we did. And I didn't purposely didn't think. I didn't project anything. I just focused on playing that bowl. And that was a throat chakra bowl that for me produces the color green and is tuned to Saturn. Now using the normal system, green in the throat, Saturn in the throat. Saturn's the slowest planet. That should be down in the root chakra, isn't it? But this guy in his body, he came up afterwards and said, I don't know why, Frank, but I, I kept wanting to go into the posture for red and green and Saturn. Mm. Now, the reason he was perplexed was because in the Steiner system, Saturn is dark blue or black. It's not red or green. Mm-hmm. In my system, it's green. So his body was confirming my observations. Mm. And with three bowls, and his body confirmed every one. So, and I didn't say a word. I just, and I didn't, I didn't influence it at all. I, I'm, I'm into being objective when these things go on. And so I just make the sound and allow, allow his body to do its thing, you know. And so it's to do with the quality of the energy that's in the sound. And uh, so I have certain bowls that may be tuned to certain deities. Uh, one of the Dhani Buddhas, let's say Amogasiddhi, and um, it resonates with his energy. And I, uh, this woman bought this bowl from my wife, ex-wife, and, uh, and she rang after a few years and said, that I'm having, I've had nothing but trouble since I had that bowl. Do you think it's cursed or dirty? I've had all my Reiki friends and they can't shift it, you know. So I said, well, bring it, do a workshop, uh, bring it along in the lunch hour and have a look, you know. So I, I hadn't looked at it before because it was, my wife was saying, I didn't want to, didn't want to say, oh, I really want that one. I thought she's trying to make a living, you know. So, um, so I played it, and then I saw this Dhyani Buddha. I didn't know which one it was. I just I saw his head in that, and I thought, I need to see the hands because the mudras. So I went down and finally saw the hands, and then I described to her the energy of this bowl. I said, look, it's about being totally focused, really, really non-wavering, and she had a real butterfly mind, so I could see why it was hard for her to work bowl. A couple of weeks later, I got home and I was watching a video by Joseph Campbell uh, about the after-death state and talking about the when you meet the Dhyani Buddhas in the throat chakra if you can't stay up in the higher levels of samadhi when you're dead. 
in that period of the uh, Bardo total. So I looked, I looked at these, and then the guy came up with the posture that I saw, and it was a Mogasidi, whose name means he who cannot be uh, distracted from his aim. <laughs> So it was perfect what I said the bowl did. So my point I'm trying to make here is, as far as I'm concerned, the bowl, the energy in that bowl has to be the same as what you're wanting to tune it into. Uh, and that goes, in the past, that's fine. They will be tuned into what it what it is. But if somebody nowadays might think, oh, I'd love a white Tara bowl, uh, yeah, that one will do. You know? <laughs> and it's not like that. For me, it's not like that. It's more sacred than that. Right. And you really have to be in in tune. I'll do workshops and I'll play a white Tara bowl. And then afterwards I'll have a few devotees will come up and say, Oh, would you, would you please play that just for me? And then they'll be in tears. Mm. They'll be saying, Oh my, she's here. Mm-hmm. And I was doing one gig once in a, 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 a new age kind of house. And the guy on before me was doing, I don't know, it's some sort of dance music for new age dance music. And as I started to put my bowls out, he said, follow that. So I thought, okay. So I've got out my panic bowl, which is for exorcisms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this energy was in seconds. And there were these um, devotees of uh, Babaji devotees outside. And they said, why well, Stephen was here? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course he was. <laughs> the guy, the guy <laughs> you never issue a... He would never issue a challenge to a choleric. You know, the guy didn't know his homework. There has to be something in that sound, which is why, as I say, I might have brand new bowls, but the, there's something in the combination of harmonics and the way they interact that links it to being useful in a certain way in a certain chakra. And they could be subsidiary chakra bowls. So I have a pair that work on the solar plexus. And then I have a few others that I can add to that. I've got one which is slightly higher in pitch. And that one's called invincible, and that's its kind of energy. So that's very good if you, if we need to strengthen somebody's solar plexus. Maybe they're not very good at speaking up for themselves. And one guy had been raised in a spiritual family, and so it was uh, probably considered bad form to say, "I want," or "Could I?" You know, Shh, you just be happy with what you've got. You know, and so I strengthened that for him because I felt he was getting to a point in his life where he needed to be a bit more. Love thy neighbour as thyself. You don't have to lose yourself, and so just get, uh, just change the balance. And uh, that's my main thing in in sound healing. Anyway, I mean, what I do, I call it spiritual sound healing, spiritual sound, spiritual healing. You know, sound healing. It's all three. It's not just not just sound that I'm working with. And then main thing is with somebody coming for healing, there's two ways this can go. Have they lost their rhythm and they need to be re-established in that rhythm? Or is it the case that that rhythm's not working anymore? Like we are at the moment in this whole coronavirus thing. That old rhythm is not going to work anymore. So we can kicking forward into a new rhythm where we can reintegrate these new energies and new desires, new thoughts into a new rhythm that will su- su- help us move into the future. So there's that kind of healing, which is more like a kick up the backside, and more the other kind, which is more, well, let's uh, be more nurturing and get you back in touch with this loving energy where it was all going very well before, but till something knocked you off balance, a change came into your life, and you just couldn't meet that challenge. Mm-hmm. It was too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a, a really great point that you've hit on a few times when it comes to using the bowls and, and learning from them is experimenting and, and being <laughs> playful and that there's not just striking and stroking the bowl, that 
Mm. They have so much to tell you. And, and just like from from people that play gongs, it's, you know, you might have one gong, but to learn more from it, you need to get different mallets. And mm. so, you know, the bowls have so much to tell us and so many different ranges, yes. right? And it might have to do with the mallet that you're using. So just experimenting um, and listening. Well, that's right. Mm -hmm. Very thin mallets, about 1993. Uh, I should call them, I call them ones actually for playing the bowls. Right. And the very thin ones from just wood, they're very good for small bowls or for getting very high harmonics out of other bowls. And so it's often a question for me of trying to find out what that bowl should sound like. Not just, in, I mean, the, the thing they give you in the shop, that may be useless. You know, so I've try and work out and so often when I get a bowl I'll strike it and then I'll rotate it around a bit strike it again and often the bowl will sound different in different points on the circumference of the rim so it's a question of finding one I'm happy with or one where I feel the bowl sounds happiest it's the particular combination of overtones that that sounds just right so I think that bowl is now singing its song now I can work out what that song is all about where is it taking me prior to that I could have just been getting a wrong direction and it's the same with stroking the bowls. I have made, I invented ones for that about 1981. I learned wood turning so I could make my own because you couldn't get any in those days. And they're made from all different woods. People would give me a bit of their hedgerow or whatever. And I'd turn it, I'd try it on a bowl. And um, if somebody was coming to buy bowls off my ex, like I say, then we might have uh, one bowl on the floor and maybe a dozen different ones. And they, play they try each one on it and after a while they begin to hear oh oh it's sounding different now mm. so it's kind of like saying that upper partial is is quiet now it's gone it's died down and this lower one has come come to the fore it's a rearrangement of the partials using different woods which have different frictions and playing at different speeds and everything and so then eventually you would use a piece of wood and then i would think ah oh, that's the sound. So for my 12th century heart chakra bowl, I got, I always play it with the same wand. And when I'm laying out my bowls, that wand will be right near that bowl. And any other bowl that has a, a particular wand, I'll have the wand very close to it. So when I'm doing a concert and I suddenly think, that's the one I need for now, it's ready to go, you know. Mm -hmm. I have another was really temperamental and I'd spend ages trying to find the right one and I'd do a gig and it wouldn't work and I think you don't ask all you you know and then eventually I found one where it did work and it's a piece of hickory now is it hickory no maple I think maple and that does it every time now and that's so wonderful because that one is what I call a yoga bowl that's one where the fundamental of the bowl is sounding and one of the upper partials is sounding as well. They both sound together. So it's like higher self, lower self, like yoga union between these two. And that one has a very specific visualization with it, which is uh, up in the up in the mountains at night, dark blue, black, and then this lake, and then the full moon shining on the surface of the lake or a star. You know, that is the vision that comes in. There's slightly more to do with an angel that's connected with it, slightly more to do with the... Uh, body of the angel but uh, basically that is the, the meditation I call it Blue Mountain Lake Bowl so I'll often give my bowls names to do with what I've discovered they do so you know but yeah it's a it's a question of some bowls have been used for certain things or some bowls can be used for a certain thing like a new bowl could be used in a certain way um, an Australian guy came to see me because he had a load of bowls and he wanted me to check them out for him and I would and um it was really good because 
some of them did have very particular visualizations with them and i would be able to tell him what they were and how to work with it and then i he asked me to do his horoscope and when having seen his horoscope i could see that he'd chosen the exact right bowls for him mm. and his less in this life and just by following his intuition just uh, mm -hmm. he said he'd turn up in these places in nepal and they go here here's the bowls and he and he try a few and go no and that's not what I'm looking for I've been to see this guy Frank Perry and his bowl's a bit something else you know oh well just go over there and then he said oh what it was the ones they sent him to said that's the ones the Americans or anybody who buys and sells bowls that's the ones they go for easy to play you know ring on quite a long time blah de blah but they were not looking at the healing aspect you know and uh, so that is a particular ability that one would need to have to notice these things but the other thing is to take your time if it's not working now maybe have a have another go another day another time because sometimes i find that a bowl will be tuned into a particular thing but it's only when i've had a certain experience in my life and it an initiation of some sort which would be an expansion of my spiritual consciousness that i'm then able to hear what that bowl is saying and so some bowls are tuned into particular meditations and because i've done them in different places i know them and i'm able to recognize ah that one's tuned into shine ah that one's the breathing thing you just have to watch your breath coming in and out that's how that one is used you know mm -hmm. and so it's just way just my way is uh, i suppose i'm following the bowl rather than laying my trip on it i'm kind of thinking well that's what that bowl wants to do how dare i interfere with mm -hmm. it you know mm -hmm. that's what it's been doing for hundreds of years so uh, and i can work with that energy and it's helpful so i'm gonna do it yeah mm -hmm. You know, I've got 12 heart chakra bowls. They're all different notes. I think they span the interval of a fifth, a major fifth. So mm -hmm. I'm not, we're not talking about it's out by a little here. <laughs> and I remember I, there was a guy making bowls for healing and he sold heart chakra bowls. And I met a guy who owned a shop that sold that kind of thing. And I said, I bet if I got a, a bunch of them, they'd all sound different. And he said, well, I sell them. And I can tell you, they're all different. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, well, that's quite funny because it makes books and it says... You know, someone heart chakra needs to, you need the heart chakra bowl, and yet they're all different. So it can't be anything to do with the sound of the bowl because they all make it all tuned into a different thing. <laughs> or if they are not as scientific as he'd like you to believe. <laughs> mm. I think it's dangerous <clears throat> to get science involved with this to an extent. As I say, I like to be objective, but you know, I don't have just an earthly brain. Mm -hmm. I've extended or higher rational and higher reasoning sure. mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm fortunate enough to have a few people to confirm this mm. you know, i mean the book i talk about meeting this tibetan lama who was over in london to establish a center tibetan Buddhist center and I, he wanted to meet me and um so i took what well, i was a talking bowl along which i'd been given by his holiness Dilgo Kinsi Rinpoche, which he said was very rare and very old and when i tuned into that i was in a state of consciousness uh, called I and the Father are one, and and I thought well, that's like Nirvana, so I called it Nirvana. Well, I call it a talk, it's called a talking bowl, but it's my Nirvana bowl. And so I played it to this Lama, and the woman, American woman, there she translated. She was married to a Tibetan who'd been the teacher of this guy in a previous life and was now his student. But anyway, she translated and the, he heard it chanting a mantra, and it said to cross the sea of samsara and enter Nirvana. So I thought, that's it. Mm -hmm. We're, we went to the same school, me and this guy. Mm -hmm. Not long before, I met a woman who was uh, considers herself very high in the sound community in England. 
who came up to me after a concert, I, I didn't know who she was at the point, and just kind of came up and said, load of rubbish about these bowls, you can buy about a pound in India, they're just fruit bowls. Yeah. I wouldn't mind, but I had 500 instruments and one singing bowl. <laughs> but 500 singing bowls and one gong, fair enough, you know, bring it on. But So I just thought, wow, so maybe I, when I've got this thing that looks like a grail cup, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's a cup. Maybe I really have gone over the top, which is one reason I took it to this guy. But no. He was able to confirm my observations, just like that Eurythmus confirmed my other observations. Mm-hmm. So there are some, but not everybody will be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, not everybody probably wants to. But it's a, it can be a question of what it does for you, for the individual, mm-hmm. and therefore how uh, putting one in a particular space, putting in tune with a certain energy. And if sometimes that might be feeling the energy working in the chakra like feeling fire there or something feeling a something's going on in this chakra or something to do with that chakra so sticking with the heart chakra we could say something to do with divine love or compassion love for one's fellow beings but an expansion of love away from the self or the little concerns of our daily life in any case and if it does that then we can say well that's got something of a heart chakra energy to it you know mm-hmm. If we become, if I have a certain bowl and I play that, I become instantly more aware of sound, and so I, th- and I think, well, that's to do with working with sound. I become far more aware of what I, what any, any one sound of any one bowl is doing, over and above what I might know already, you know. So uh, yeah, so that 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 can be used for sound meditations in workshops. I've got a bowl which is for the Guru Purnima ceremony. I only use that. It comes out once a year for Guru Purnima for over those period of days. So I'm looking forward to being reunited with that one soon. And uh, so because for me, that's what it does. So it makes no sense to, you know, just to play it in a gig. I mean, I used to do solo concerts with all these temple bells from Zen Buddhist monasteries from 400 years ago and Chinese temples and... And playing in Ronnie Scott's jazz club. You know, people are smoking, they're on mm. drugs, they're drinking alcohol. I'm suddenly thinking, they're not coming here to be enlightened. Right. What point of right have I got to be playing these spiritual instruments to people who want a bit of fun? Mm-hmm. You know, I look at my instruments and think, now, which one, which of these are sacred? And, and they should only come out when they're going to be used in the right way. It's like that symbol, that one I got for 25th birthday. It's like a, I can think of it as a doorbell to a particular master. So if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna play that, I've got to be prepared to meet that master. I can't be like a naughty little school child runs up to the door, presses the banner and run, buzzer and runs away. You know, I've got to be prepared for this being is going to arrive. And you know, it's like a bit like a genie, I suppose. And uh, not that you're at my command or anything, but um, yeah. And I remember another member in my spiritual group heard that and said, right, go straight to the master, you know. Mm-hmm. And so one gets these. So sometimes it might be good to have a friend with, with you if you're going looking for a bowl and they can strike it, they can stroke it. You can just observe it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And don't buy any stories. If they, you know, the, the guy starts saying, oh, this is very rare. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's five times more expensive <laughs> than all the others. Sure. yeah. I had a guy come here, Paul Blake, got this bowl out and he said, um, so he'd been told to come to me because I make these wands and that's why he'd come. And he started telling me what he'd been told about this bowl and everything he'd been told was a lie. Yeah. You know, he's told that if you drop it, it will smash into a million pieces. I said, it's metal. It's a bowl. It will crack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> been told 
you know, very old. I said, I, I psychometrized that. I said it's about five to ten years old. He'd been told it was it was painted on it a particular note. I think it might have been an F sharp. So I got a, a thing out to check it. It was between B and a C. It wasn't even a note, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so it went on, you know. And then the price. How much would you sell a bowl like this for? About fifty pounds. This was four hundred and fifty pounds. Oh, no. You know. Yeah, and it went on, and I thought, oh, God. I said, I'm not trying to make things bad for this guy. I'm just being honest. I can't, I'm sorry. I'm an honest person. And then yeah, he said, look, I'm going to take it back and get my money back. Would you mind if I mentioned your number? I said, no, no, because I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to get the guy into any trouble. You've meant, you've staged things that are false, and I'm put you right. That's all. Yeah. He said he went back, told the guy that he'd been to see me. The guy just gave him the money back straight away. <laughs> Uh, he did <laughs> not in the sense he knew I'd store something all up for him but I wouldn't short change you know oh it was so funny that same uh, guy was doing a workshop in Gaunts again and some a couple of guys are over and doing gongs and bowls and the guy brought in a bowl of his they'd asked me to do to take the afternoon workshop on singing bowl so he got this bowl and he said can you tell me about this Frank so I said uh I said, yeah, and I told him what it was for, particular meditation. And he said, oh, I've been told it was, I've got black magic in it. I said, no, rubbish, I'm really hot on that. I said, no, it's got nothing, that's a bit dirty, it needs nearly anything needs to chop, but not, no, not that. And he told me who told him that, and it was a guy who claimed that he'd made it in a previous life, and blah, 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 you know, but it was no black magic in it. I had a woman come here, she'd got her baby, uh, her son of hers had died, teenager, committed suicide, mm-hmm. and then she, she had other children, but then she finally had a little baby boy, and the Tibetan lamas were of the opinion it was this elder son come back, and then he died of pneumonia, and she came to visit me and said, could you help me, I want to have a little ceremony, a private, you know, I've got some bowls, could you help me choose the right one? So I said, yeah, sure. And she had four and I played them all. And having met the child, I knew his energy. And so I said, well, that that one seems the nearest. And he said, oh, there's one of us, she said. I said, oh, yeah. And she got it out of her pocket. And I said, oh, my God. I said, that's full of black magic. Where the hell did you get that? Mm. And she got it off a Tibetan guy. So I said, oh, dear. I said, look, bury it in the garden. But don't give it to anybody or at least warn them. You know, I said, did the guy say anything to you when he sold you that? She said, no. Oh, wait a minute, she said. He said one thing. He said, never show that bowl to Frank Perry. No. God's it's truth. <laughs> yeah. I must have a bit of a reputation for some of these guys. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man. Someone emailed me saying, I've got this bowl, but it doesn't seem to make the right. I can't get it to work. None of my friends, you think it's broken, cracked. You know? So I said, could be. I've known people who've gone to a stall and the guy's playing a bowl, and then when he sells them, when it comes from underneath the stall, <laughs> it's not what you heard. It's some crap. You know, so I said, uh, well, maybe you should take it back, get your money back. And the next day I get another email. Oh, I found it's tuned to a particular llama, so I'm going to keep it. <laughs> so this bowl, you can't make any sound with it, but she thinks it's tuned to a llama. So, hey, hey, it's going to okay. keep it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... It is. And, uh, you know, we have to try and keep the ego out of it and be right. objective, mm-hmm. you know, rather think well this bowl's for me i can feel it for me it's got to be special i'm special mm. you know second coming only in one year so this mm-hmm. has got to be something special and some goon like me comes along and just says nothing in that bowl sorry nothing in this one nothing. oh this one's interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> just straight you know yeah. it's probably, i think it's best you know the throat chakra which is to do with sound the name means pure 
purification, purity. So you can't work with sound if you're not pure. You're going to get a distorted view of what the sound is. I'm not saying you've got to be absolutely pure. You've got to be on the fittest diet and goodness knows what else. But um, like, you know, in my case, I did give a lot of stuff up back in 1965, you know, smoking, drinking, drugs, anything like that. <laughs> so I've been clean ever since. Yeah. So it's funny, at my wedding, Keith Tippett spoke to me after he came up and said, Oh, don't get at the reception. So don't get it, man. I'm the only one drinking there. Mm. <laughs> we have all these spiritual guests, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so funny. It doesn't occur to me that's why you want to go to a reception. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Mm. I'm quite innocent. <laughs> you know, I'm curious after, gosh, you've been in this field, you know, 50 years, probably over 50 years. And um, yeah. the, the field itself has shifted and changed, changed so much. And um, yeah. What are you focusing on the most right now? What are you really excited about? What has your attention? Well, I still often meditate on the word and possible meanings of that, like uh, St. John's Gospel, at the beginning, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos, in the beginning was, was word, and that word was God and was with God. And so... And old God is in old English meant good, so doesn't mean half the hang-ups we've mm-hmm. got with, mm-hmm. with that word nowadays. In the same way that Saturn, old English for Saturn, was Satan, and Saturn is the planet that gives us a sense of being a separate individual self, a boundary, an ego. And so, of course, if we go over, if we overdo that a bit, we get satanic. And Mars is the other. But, trouble boy he's to just to do with energy and if that gets out of control then we're getting very angry very aggressive very hateful and so too much saturn too much mars you're in trouble just the right amount you're okay but you know old english yeah, it was satan and then like lucifer was old english for venus when venus was morning star so when she's coming with the light the light of the day when she's announcing the the sun so Nothing to, like like the same as sin, you know. In the ancient Greek, that was the word used in archery practice. If you missed the target, it was said you sinned. Mm-hmm. Think what that flipping word means. <laughs> According to their Catholics, you're born in sin. You know, mm-hmm. uh, crazy. And so, and like Jesus, when he originally spoke about good and evil, that in its in in the Aramaic in the language he spoke would translate as um, ripe and unripe. So if I get something comes to me when I'm unripe for it, it's going to have a bad effect on me. I could even think it's evil. <laughs> but the other way to look at evil, the way I look at it, is that evil is, and look, God is everything. So God is also evil. But in that case, it means unevolved. It means it's a very bad way of responding to a particular planetary energy. So, um, you know, and that's how it is. And so humanity as such may not respond very well to a particular planetary energy. So I'm thinking often about that, about kind of the word and things, and um, working, yeah, working with that. Uh, What else? Um, I mean, I'm always just trying to get deeper into what a deeper understanding of what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So I'm trying to hear more, see if I can hear more sounds in the bowls that I've already analyzed. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, what else? Uh, I mean, yeah, still trying to work on what sort of qualities or 
spiritual values uh, can awaken in ourselves and which bowls are likely to do that um you know because uh i mean heal healing comes from the old english word hail which means whole so if we move out of our state of wholeness of complete at oneness with the whole universe then we are we're not at ease with ourselves we have some kind of dis-ease and so we have to try to find some way of getting coming to terms with it like i say if it's a challenge that um you know maybe i'm really happy i'm blissed out and i the bus driver on the next bus i get on has a right go at me for some reason long it or something you know and then i could be tempted to feel oh dear you know i'm i'm not at one with my fellow human beings <laughs> at all i'm just kidding myself <laughs> or do i say maybe he's having a bad day maybe the customer before me got on annoyed him and he's taking that on me because he can see i'm not going to give anything back you know i don't know i'm an easy target you know? <laughs> so um what else uh, are you doing any writings or events or trainings or are things pretty much put on hold as far as that goes um this year. Yes, pretty much on hold. I mean, I used to spend, people would order an awful lot of my wands from me and I'd be weeks and months turning wood in the sheds. I'm, I just allowed myself thinking, well, I'm just going to have a break from that. I have a break from a lot of things. And I have the two books out. Um, I did think I might write one on sound healing, but I'm in two minds about that. But I'm off, often jotting down notes, any kind of recent insight or flash of revelation that I've had, then that will go into my notes and go towards improving my understanding um i'm not doing many gigs along with many other people mm -hmm. uh, i did have a workshop that got cancelled yeah um so yeah i mean yeah it's interesting i mean it's very i don't i'm living out in the country here i don't you know meet many people and uh, so i'm not i'm not on the scene it's like i'm not meeting everybody who's on the scene mm -hmm. and uh but I meet people who come to me for sound healings and and they say, well, I've been to loads of healers in London. It's nothing like you, what you're doing. You know? And then a couple of sound healers came to me for a healing and then for me to check their bowls out. And they said, next time they came, they said, we couldn't believe it. When we came out from your sound healing, it was nothing like we felt from anybody else. We felt really clear, mm. really clear. And I thought, oh, that's nice to know. You know. But I wouldn't know that if they didn't say anything. You know, and I wouldn't have any reason to dream it or think it. I just do what I do, you know, and in the hope that I help somebody. And I think a lot of it is to do with empathy. I think that one has to have a healing ability, which would come from spiritual divine love in the heart for one's fellow beings. And uh, then there has to be something in the sound that one I'm using as well. The two have to marry up. And then there's a chance I can shift something. But the vast majority of people who come to me for sound healing never say a word. They come in, I say motion to them to lie on the on the on the mattress, and then I put a little cover there, and then I then I start. They I don't even know what's wrong with them. I mean, the most doctors have got the got the luxury or somebody walks in, say, I've hurt me knee, doctor. They can oh right, right. I know what I can go on the internet and see what I can give them this drug, that drug. I haven't got any of that. I've got to look at their chat and work out which ones are not functioning properly and why what I need to bring to that chakra to get it right and um, or get it uh, to shift from where it is and uh, and that's it and at the end I share what I've seen and what I've done and then so far everybody said you hit the nail on the head so it's a gift 
I can't teach that gift. I can't sell that gift. <laughs> I'm not very good at selling anything anyway. You know, I mean, I wrote that story about that symbol way, way back, probably 1973, 74, and I think a magazine called Drums and Drumming, and various New Age magazines where they asked me to write about my music and my work. And then uh, a CD that came out, I think, in the 1980s, I think it was called Shangri-La, and in there, they kind of stolen my story. It was all like, oh, the man who made this CD, he was initiated in Tibet into the healing school tradition, and he's the, he's the knowledge holder. I mean, he died before that record came out. But, you know, he's a knowledge holder. He's got, I had spoke about a 12th century heart chakra bowl with a bit more gold. He's got an 11th century heart chakra bowl, solid gold. Unaware that solid gold would sound awful. <laughs> Clever enough not to make that mistake. Mistake <laughs> it be. And so it went on. And I met somebody in the business who actually knew this chap. And I mentioned to him about this. And he said, yeah, that was all the record guy, you know, the guy who owned the label. My friend had done all the tracks and he died before he could put it together as an album. So the guy who owned the label, who was uh, quite high up in the music world of new age stuff, he put all that. He probably read my thing and thought, that's a great story. We'll have that. It's just a story to him. It's a sales pitch. Mm -hmm. It's my reality, my truth, you know. Mm -hmm. And I talk, I share about, I've got certain bowls tuned to particular masters, tuned to particular planets, particular chakras. And then I get people coming up saying, I've got this master bowl. I say, really? Uh, what master is it tuned into then? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, what does it mean, master bowl? Uh, I don't know. Does it mean that if you had a table of bowls and you struck this one and all the others you tell this one is so superior, it's got it's like a master bowl? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> does it mean it's made master bowl? Maybe? Uh, I don't know. Does it mean it's tuned into a particular spiritual master? I don't know. Because if it is, is that your master? Is it tuned into the master the second ray and you're on the fifth ray? Is it tuned into a master the fourth ray and you're on the second ray? Uh, they don't go any. All they want to know is it's a master bowl. I own it. Cost me four times more than anything else. Aren't I wonderful? <laughs> but I'm in Git who's got to keep, you know, why are you calling it a master bowl? Why is that a planet bowl? Is that because in the planet gongs, a, a gong that sounds close to A is for Venus, and if you've got a bowl so close to A, that's going to be a Venus bowl. You know, it's just a way of selling. It's a sales pitch for a lot of these people. Yeah. It's my truth. I'm only sharing in case people are interested or it can serve them in some way. But for people that are in the business, it's a sales pitch. Mm -hmm. right? And that's strange. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's funny. This guy recently was um, having a go at Manny Palmer Hall, who I consider one of the great thinkers of last century from California. And he was saying he was evil and all this blah, blah, all that kind of church stuff. And um, so I got on there and said something. And he said, oh, you're a, you're a perfect example of an, of an uh, culturally engineered Marxist. <laughs> I felt like saying, how dare you? How dare you say I'm a product of some, something or another? I'm a self-made man. I've got myself in kit form, HMS Victorious. <laughs> <laughs> How did you suggest that I'm a product of somebody's? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. so what I could think was, I thought, blimey, if you think, I, I, thought, I, could, I decided he must think Jesus is a Marxist. Well, this is I am the father of one, and I am in you, and you are in me. And what I do, you can do. I mean, he's got to think he's a Marxist, isn't he? Mm. <laughs> so people bring their stuff to 
experiences and things and the more open you are more playful childlike as you say the more chances that we can get what's there you know Mm -hmm. rather than i'm it's this i want it to be that you know and i've heard people who go out and buy bowls out in the east quite regularly and they're in a shop and somebody comes in and says to the owner what chakra is this bowl and she can't speak english so the guy translates it for us using fits of laughter (laughs) 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 Bowl chakra, we put noodles in it. We, you know, I had a bit of llama like that. He was head of the Shigatsi monastery, I'm um, a chief abbot, and he was over with their monks. And I said, Jamal, you can do that tantric chanting, can't you? He said, No, no, no. A bit later, he's doing it. I said, See, I told you you could do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and saying, Point to the bowls and go, Oh, yeah, I used to have these, eat my noodles out of them. I said, Yeah, great. He said, A big one, I had an umbrella. I said, Yeah, great, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's an umbrella for me it's Kuntazangpo, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> yeah. Or mother whatever it is. I'm not I'm not restricted. But obviously as a lot of these instruments have been had in the East and been consecrated to a certain spiritual aim. I mean in Guru in um Anaka Anagarika Govinda's book, The uh, Mysteries of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got that book in nineteen sixty five, so I might not have the total title totally right but um in there he talks about he's studying with a particular teacher and he says go and commission a tanker and this is what you want you want padmasamba but he told him exactly what should be painted on the tanker and he would hang that in the cave wall and he would visualize he would look at that focus upon it for months and years until he could remember he didn't need it anymore as a as a prop he would just visualize it in his mind and it would all be what, he, what it needed to be to do his spiritual practice. And I think that the same thing could happen with bowls. With somebody that's working with sound on that path, and I don't think there's that many, uh, and I think it could be a, a, a path that has, that's gone. I've seen on that film, uh, Yogis of Tibet, they have some yogis teaching, which they're sworn not to teach, but they've got numbers coming forward and they're old. They're thinking, if it will die with me if I don't say anything. And who's to say before they had films and people going out there interviewing sound masters in Tibet or wherever, mm-hmm. who's to say that there were these traditions and they just died out because nobody's, you know, what's in it for them anymore? Mm-hmm. You've just got to stick in your tongue out all the time. You know, that Tibetan greeting, apparently that's how I greeted my mother. I stuck my tongue out and she thought I was being extremely rude. First thing I did as a baby, apparently it's a typical Tibetan greeting right. where you show that you haven't got a blue tongue. Whereas it's believed if you chant mantras and things, and therefore could be up to dodgy things, your tongue goes blue. So it's a way of saying, look, I'm okay. won't do any harm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do that on the butt to the bus driver, and I could be in trouble, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a kind of appropriate thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a question of how I can use certain bowls, and whether they're new or whether they're ancient. Um, and then if they are ancient, I try and remain true to how they've been used right. and uh, yeah, um, and then how that can help in the in the sound healing um, as I say there are 12 bowls for the heart chakra and mostly I work with pairs I work with a thing I call matched pairs back in the early 80s 
I used to go and buy bowls from a place called Frontiers. I knew the guy was manager and he would let me have first choice. So box loads of bowls would come in. I'd be there all afternoon, all day, sorting through them. Ones that were cracked or were really bad sound, I'd give them to him, say, put peanuts in them or something. Some that were really musical that I didn't want, I'd say, these are for really musical people can really hear. Other ones I say, this will be really good for working with water. I've got enough water bowls at the moment, so that's cool. You know, and then, but anyway, I would buy these little Yang Manny Puri bowls. I just like them. And then I would get them home and I'd get out all the ones I bought before to see where it fits with all them. And often I'd find, oh, crikey, it sounds just the same as that one. I must like that note. Mm -hmm. And then I'd listen a bit more and I'd strike the one, then strike the other. And then I'd hear... They were relating to one another. There was this third thing going on. There was this beating, this warble, this doublet, a binaural kind of beat that was happening between these two bowls. And um, so they're very, very close together. Um, I mean, I can, I mean, I've got one here. I've got one pair here, and the bass note is B E flat plus twenty four, which is three one five point five hertz. And the other one is three one five. And then the next one on the first is eight eight one point five. And the other one's three one nine point five. Then the other one's eight eight eight. The next one on the other is eight eight nine. Then the next one on the first is sixteen fifty four. The next one here is eight nine two point five. So some of them are quite close together, maybe about three hertz difference. So they would be a pulse of about three beats a second. And that would then help to entrain the listener into an altered brainwave state down into theta or alpha, where it is said we are more responsive to healing energies. Mm -hmm. So I just developed that by accident. Again, it's just like nature is leading me. I'm just checking out which of these bowls should I keep. And suddenly, oh, there's a new thing happening here. And so then when I find a a bowl for a chakra i might look for another bowl which they do this thing together so for the chakras up to the heart i mostly strike the bowls but from then on it's mostly stroke there may be a few struck once in a while but it's largely stroke beneath the heart and struck sorry struck beneath the heart stroke to bowl and so this phenomena works more with well apart from it being difficult to stroke two at once around somebody's head um this works better with being struck, which also has a more direct attack or approach upon the chakras. Um, so it's more potent in that way. And so I would look for another bowl which carried a similar energy to the first solar plexus bowl. I mean, and I, I play bowls either side of people's head. I don't put them on the body. I don't put them around the body. There are many different systems mm -hmm. that people have unfolded and evolved and whatnot. And uh, this is just the system that I use mm -hmm. according to... Alfred Tomatis, 70% of the electric energy of the body comes to us through the ears. So I thought, well, I'm going to work with the ears then, you know, and I would put bowls around the ears and combinations of bowls. So I'd be taking away the solar plexus bowls when I put in the heart ones. And so I work from bottom up. So I will start, if the root chakra needs working, I'll start with the root and then I'll go to, if Blaine needs doing, no, okay, next solar plexus. Pretty well every case, I'd say the solar plexus needs treating. Then I would go to Heart, if it needed it, and the front, whatever, whatever was needed in that particular treatment at that time, I would work through the bowls. And then, if I'm thinking throat, what do I? Need? I've got four to choose from. Is it all four, or just one of those, two of those? Which combination of two? And the same with the heart. What um, what am I seeing going on in this heart? You know. So for me, my different pairs of heart chakra bowls are connected with particular colors on the astral. So I have one pair that work with violet. So if the person needs violet to the heart, I'll work with that pair. 
and that might have something like cancer and something very very demanding a lot of courage uh my next pair would be um provide three colors soft rose pink to the heart that would be selfless love uh unselfishness if a person was very self-centered that might help loosen that up a bit and that gold is another color that that challenges that might be very good if the person needed to get in touch with the spiritual sun and then blue for devotion so if they needed to develop more devotion and so on and there's an amethyst pair they the rose pair to the heart is a pretty stable one i would say and then um, the amethyst pair with that and the interesting thing with that is i often get a vision so as I'm working with the amethyst pair and looking at focusing on the heart chakra with my eyes closed, I will see something. Quite often it's a pyramid. And sometimes there's a light at the top of the pyramid, sometimes a light inside the pyramid. It can be anything. One time it was an eye, one time it was an egg. And when I share it with a the person, they say, well, that's amazing. My teacher has got me meditating on his egg or my teacher works with the eye, you know, and it all fit in. And one Japanese lady it was most impressive. The one who said, I've been all these other and it's not the same. I saw this temple over her heart. So at the end, I explained, I said what it looked like. And she said, that's the temple. That's my temple I go to in Japan. And she said she was walking around for days in the kind of condition she was in after the <laughs> It lasted for, for days. But so she, yeah, she likes coming for a healing when I'm up in London. Well, she came down here once, I think, with a friend or two. So I think music nowadays... Music's everywhere, isn't it? So sounding, you know, it's like music's in the lift, it's in the airport, it's in the shops, it helps people spend money, feel good music, you know, have music for childbirth, you've got music for uh, mood music, if, you know, if you want, want to get your girlfriend, I mean, that was so funny, I got <laughs> my friend, and it was about gongs, you know, and instead of, yeah, you want to have sex, and uh, put the Mars gong track on, you know, you want to get a little <laughs> The Jupiter gong, I'm thinking, oh my God, talk about Daily Mail. <laughs> you know, this is such a low level of astrological understanding. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't take it seriously, I'm afraid. But this music is sport. You know, like in snooker, when somebody comes out, he's got his own song that he walks out to, you know. Mm -hmm. And like sound sculptures, loads of like tubes hanging up that blow in the wind, or there's um, organs that are played by the tide, you know, and there's all sorts of aeolian harps that are around so people in public places they may be becoming a bit more aware and in waiting rooms the dentist doctors the bank the sure. hospital i mean it'll be the television it might be the news but there'll still be sound there'll still be noise going on they're not going to leave you in silence and there's music to to now music in the workplace you know way back in the 1930s they would have say there's research People would work harder if you got music playing for them. And cows produce better milk if you play music to them, you know. And this whole kind of thing has been slowly building up. And so then it gets to the point of, oh, I'm interested in that. But do I want to learn about music, about scales and oh my, melodies? Hum? Do I want to learn to play a cello or a... Hang on, is this thing you just bang this gong and it does it, you know? Yeah, or just bang this bowl. Mm -hmm. You have two bowls, it doesn't matter. All you've got to do is hit them or stroke them. That's the worst thing. Right? The difficult thing is to stroke it, or the difficult thing is to play a role on the gong, to get it even, to get, you know, two hands are landing at the same speed and the same weight, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's a, they're tricky, but the basic thing, walk up and hit it. So then what are you going to do if you're teaching about gongs? How are you going to last a weekend? Just say to everybody, well, you can come, your turn now, come up and hit, right, hit it, your turn now, right, you can all go home now, or do you bring in a load of other stuff? 
And then there's people who get into the whole story of who made the first bowl, what was it made of, you know. If you go on a piano course, you go to learn the piano, and they're not going to talk about what was the first piano made of, what were the first keys playing of, what existed before, oh, a clavichord, okay. You know, who made, who invented that, who made it, who's the best maker, blah, blah, blah. They, you know, they just want to get on there and play it. What am I playing today, Debussy, or, you know, what I'm, you know Federico Monpu, who am I playing today, you know, uh, that's what they not who made it, how is it made, you know. All right, if it's a, a flash named Steinway or something, then, oh, yeah, oh, I'm playing a Steinway, you know. And it's perfectly in can't blind guy come around with his dog, and he, he spent ages tuning every note, you know. It's in perfect tune. But, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, it's like these merchants that cash in on my stuff, it's just like they are nowadays, you know, with this... Um, COVID virus, it's like people cashing on the PPE. So you get hospitals saying it would cost me £100 to order 100 of these. Now they're charging me £500. Mm -hmm. People are just unscrupulous. You get unscrupulous merchants who will just use anything to to make a sale. Mm -hmm. And they'll tell people any kind of story you like, you know. I had a guy come down here, he bought a pair of Tibetan symbols. Well, so he was told. It was, the city was on eBay, I think, and the, the gig was some llama had retired and was selling all his sacred gear. You know. And he turned up these symbols. I said, I've never seen anything like it. They were Indian to me. They're not Tibetan. I've never seen a Tibetan like that. They look filthy. He said, do you think they're antique? I said, well, I, I doubt it. I'll tell you what I said. Just when you get home, wash them in so warm, soapy water. So he did that. <laughs> all went. <laughs> A brand new pair of symbols. <laughs> yeah. How do I do? What do I do with them now? Well, you either ask for your money back, saying the guy tried to pull a fast one, or you, I don't know, give them to some. I don't know what you do with them. <laughs> I just tell you the truth. Oh, no. <laughs> Sometimes quiet about this truth. I tell you, I'm lucky to. Wrong. <laughs> uh, just rolled them around in in mud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Oh, and then tell no. us. Lots of some llamas from some sacred monastery, hundreds and thousands of years old. Oh no! Mm-hmm. And he can't stand hand to hand from his disciple to another. But you'll get a chance this time. You're all right. We're going to be let in. Yeah. <laughs> One guy up in the field. He gave me this bowl, and he said, claimed that it was, uh, it was a gift he wanted to give me. It had come from an excavation uh, out east somewhere, and uh, it was, you know, century 200 odd BC and blah blah and I looked at it and I could see it was new and uh, so I commentized it. it was about five years old and then I said to him there's no hammer marks on it oh it's a special technique where they uh, rub it in the ashes of a, a very special wood and <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know, straight face and so uh, yeah, it was a terrible sound I, it was all, I could see there was cracks and there was stuff had been put on it to make it look old that was making it sound awful it was just a piece of junk and so I knew I was seeing him the next day because he was coming to a place where I was giving, I was the guest of honour speaker and that. And so I said to him, I think you should have this back. He said, oh, why? I said, I'm not worthy of it. And he thought, then he thought better and he walked off. Because I was going to, if he said, what do you mean you're not worthy? I said, because for me, it's a piece of crap. So plainly, I'm not worthy to have it. Mm-hmm. If it's this sacred treasure that you're offering me and I'm not aware of that, I'm not worthy of it. Right. Please back <laughs> i'm not you know, don't go around saying you pulled the wool over frank perry's eyes you know because piece of junk and i'm not having it mm. <laughs> you know but uh. yeah i mean sound healing is uh 
is getting more popular. I guess the danger we might be in is trying to bring science to it. And that's where we have this whole C major scale. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the scales on the planet, you know, so we've only got major and minor and this diatonic scale, seven notes to the octave. We've got a whole load of different pentatonics based on different uh, scales, based on different geometric series, based on different musical intervals. And so they have a totally different way. I mean, you've got the slender scale in Java, divides the, the octave into five equal parts. And uh, that's going to be totally different to a pentatonic played in the diatonic scale and different to a pentatonic played on the Indian scale, Arabic scale, which is derived from a different sequence of of, uh, intervals. You know, so why this one and why, uh, you know, we've had chakras, I gather. I mean, it must be hundreds of thousands of years. How come we only just got the scale fairly recently, this, this scale, you know, and then on a particular pitch standard more recent still and then in equal tempered even more recent maybe about a hundred years ago so about that you know way back when some of these bowls were made hundreds of years ago in tibet wouldn't have known anything about it no reason why they should no criticism they'd know their folk music maybe and they'd know how to use certain sounds in meditation or healing however they used it you know i met uh, one guy who was a uh, he, he was a Western guy, but he was trained in Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhism for many, many years. Very, very high up. I think he's considered a tolku, a reincarnated lama. And he had some bowls that had been given to him by his root lama, his root teacher. So they're not that. I mean, they are pretty rare in Tibet, but it's not totally no, totally no point that they would ever exist. This guy had been given them by his teacher. And as he played them, I could see they were tuned into different episodes in the life of Padma Sambhava. And uh, he was doing a Padma Sambhava chant, so I, thought, I know that he's very connected with Padma Sambhava, however you want to say it. So, you know, these, that's, how I, that's, that's the kind of world I live in. And I kind of realized fairly recently that it's a, maybe it's a shamanic world. When I meet shamans, they greet me as a shaman. I've done no training. I don't, I haven't even read books on it. You know, I just do what I do. Mm-hmm. But I realized that when I used to play at home, I, I wasn't doing exercises. I wasn't, I was just in the now. And that was kind of very, I was in the spirit of what I was doing. I was playing for spirit. And I've now realized that's how it was. I mean, when I was working in the factory in Mildenhall and working, doing about eight hours to 13 hours practice a day on the weekend, I'd practice exercises from my books, exercises I'd written out myself. And then I would practice imagining I was playing with people. And then I imagine I was playing free and I'd play totally free, you know, and I would, and then I was playing time with people, and I, I shift around. When I got bored of one thing, I start playing another thing for a few hours. So a different kind of approach. Yeah. Have you heard those uh, violin piece, solo violin pieces by Chichinto Shelton? I don't think so. Mm-mm. Because he he he's playing the violin like a like he's doing overtone singing on it. Wow. Because the yeah, because the combination of strings being played in the solo are resonating with the chamber, the cavity of the violin, and you're getting this mm. amazing, very interesting composer. They didn't know about him until about 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Italy, didn't need to make a living, you see, so he just composed whatever he wanted. And then people discovered him, had to rewrite musical history because he was very concerned with what lived in the note. He had a mental breakdown when his wife left him when he was like in his 40s. And he, in the mental home, he played the piano and it was said he would play the same note for hours, days, weeks, months, yeah. just that note. And so he, he really got 
to hear what lived in that one note. Mm. And so it's all about that. It's all about knowing, here, you know, really working with what is in that note on that particular instrument, a combination of instruments. Mm -hmm. I'll try and send you, if you're interested, Please. I don't want to. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Please. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that soon. I would love that. Yeah, I would love to explore that. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Well, Frank, thank you so much. I've, I've got to say, um, I, I, I really appreciate the multifaceted, you know, sides of this, this whole field that you look at the spiritual, the historical, the, the practical, the, you know, theoretical, and your curiosity, you know, your, mm. your curiosity, I think is, is so important when it comes to this. And I think that's probably what's guided you to thousands of bowls and, hundreds of recordings and collaborations is just mm. your your curiosity and and connectedness to this all i i just i think it's wonderful and um um uh, thrilling <laughs> i must have got funny ears i was remembering the other day i was in the recording studio with a guy called mike trim and we were mixing one of my solo albums and i said to him uh whatever track it was i said could you I think it was reduced at half a decibel. Mm. And he thought I was having a laugh. He didn't say that or do anything. And I listened with my eyes closed. So unbeknown to me, he didn't make any change whatsoever. And at the end, I said, that didn't, that was the same, wasn't it? And he said, I was checking you because I could not believe that you can tell the difference of half a decibel wow. amplitude. Mm -hmm. But then he knew. So after that, he just did whatever I said. Mm -hmm. And the other funny thing about that was I'd say something like, could you just adjust, adjust that by an ant's cock? And he said, oh, no, he said, you're this big spiritual person and you're talking about ants, cocks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> so then I remembered I did an album with David Toop, with Brian Eno, mm -hmm. um, Obscure Number 4. And uh, I had this, all I had to do was strike this, um, one of my Chinese resting bells. And I had to do strike it, wait until I couldn't hear it, strike it again, wait, wait again, strike it again, then take one breath and then strike it again or something like this mm -hmm. and they could believe they just figured i got really weird hearing because it i was hearing it way beyond they could hear it in the studio <laughs> and mm. even, even mentioned that on the on the album cover you know talking about the length how long this period of time was yeah. between sections and the <laughs> <laughs> so i do have weird my daughter talks about my weird hearing it's <laughs> <laughs> a, a my search for truth and being prepared to look anywhere and everywhere and to question, you know, mm -hmm. and trying to be objective. Like I say, I don't, I had a woman who was very psychic and a friend in the lodge in the psychic spiritual group. And she came around and, um, I would, I played a meditation, a sound meditation. I didn't say anything. I just played. And at the end, we both had the exact same sequence of visions in the meditation. And I thought, great. Because what I was wanting to do was find out what sounds I would make that would suggest that vision. So I said, what was I saying when, you, when we were in the waterfall? She said, oh, I don't know what you were doing, darling. I left you behind, you know. <laughs> and I thought, oh, so I thought, that's no use to me, you know. We tried twice, but it was no use to me because I wanted to do a study. I wanted to be ob objective. And, but it's okay. But it's just an interesting, you know. Into experiment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, so I really appreciate you. I appreciate your silence and listening okay. uh, in between my. I think that's very generous of you. Oh, absolutely. And I really appreciate it. 
I mean, I just, I enjoy your, your stories and your experiences and it, it lends so mm. much to, to learning. Uh, so I, I appreciate it very, very much in your time. Oh, bless you for that. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, your stories and um, your enthusiasm. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. You're very sweet. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Okay. Have All a right. beautiful rest bye. of your day. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Sounds Heal Podcast, sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. You can keep up to date with what's coming up next at soundshealstudio.com. Check things out on Facebook at Sounds Heal Studio. And you can listen to all previous podcasts as well as music meditations on the YouTube channel at Sounds Heal Studio. Be well and stay tuned.